This episode of Fearless Rebel Radio is brought to you by You On Fire. You On Fire is the amazing 12-week online group coaching program that I run where we build up your worth from the ground up so that it's no longer hinging on the way that you look. It's got personalized coaching from me and incredible community support plus lifetime access. Get details on what's included in this program and sign up to be notified when doors open for the next cycle by going to summerinandin.com forward slash you on fire. I would love to have you in that program and in that group. This is Fearless Rebel Radio, a podcast about body positivity, self-worth, anti-dieting, and feminism. I am your host, Summer Inanin, a professionally trained coach specializing in body image, self-worth, and confidence, and the best-selling author of Body Image Remix. If you're ready to break free of societal standards and stop living behind the number on your scale, then you have come to the right place. Welcome to the show. This is episode 117, and I am interviewing Melissa A. Fabello, feminist writer and speaker about desirability politics, how our conditioned beliefs shape our sexual experiences, orgasms, and a primer on feminism. You can find all the links and resources mentioned in this episode at summerinandin.com forward slash 117. Before we begin... I need to give a shout out to Liddy, who left this awesome review. I would rate Summer's podcast in the top 10 of stuff that has really impacted my life for the better. I struggled for years with binge eating, and although I was able to overcome the action, I have still been haunted by how I felt about my body. I listen to her almost every morning, follow the amazing advice that I hear, and I'm truly enjoying the transformation. When she says she provides practical advice, she isn't kidding. Hang on to your seats because your life is about to get rocked in a very profound and wonderful way. Thank you, Summer, for being fearless and sharing your message. What an awesome review. Thank you so much, Liddy. That like really made me happy. So if you haven't left a review, make sure you go to iTunes and do that. You can... Do that by searching for Fearless Rebel Radio, clicking ratings and reviews, and then click to leave a review or give it a rating. This helps others to find the show and get this important message out into the world. And if you haven't already done so, please subscribe to this show via iTunes or whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. Lastly, don't forget to grab the free 10-day body confidence makeover at summerinandin.com forward slash freebies with 10 steps to take right now to feel better in your body. Today's guest is Melissa A. Fabello. Melissa A. Fabello is a feminist writer and speaker whose work focuses on body politics, beauty culture, and eating disorders. She is currently a doctoral candidate in Widener University's Human Sexuality Studies program, where her research focuses on how women with anorexia nervosa experience skin hunger. Previously, Melissa worked as a managing editor of Everyday Feminism, one of the largest independent feminist media websites in the world. You can find more of her work at melissafabello.com. We cover some really cool stuff in this podcast. I think you're going to enjoy it. Let's get started with the show. Hey, Melissa, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to have you here today. So why don't we start off by you telling people a little bit about what inspired you to get into body politics. I feel like honestly, it was just my life. It wasn't like, again, like something that 
it wasn't like I, at some point I was like seven years old and being like, I want to be an activist when I grow up. Like it wasn't something like that. It was definitely, I had gone through in my early twenties, a very difficult time where I, um, during that time developed an eating disorder and also had been in a um, relationship with someone who was very unhealthy for me. And a couple of my friends during this difficult time in my life, a couple of my friends had given me books that were based in feminism. And when I read those books, they're not even necessarily books that I would recommend today, but they were my first like real foray into feminism and reading those it changed my entire life. Like it literally, they, they gave me a framework. Feminism in general has given me a framework to understand the way that the world works mm-hmm. um, and to understand that the things that I've experienced in my life, the very traumatic things that I've experienced in my life have sociocultural factors involved in them and that they weren't my fault. It was like the thing that made me realize that things weren't my fault. Like I didn't do this to myself. Like there was something else. There's something deeper here. And from there, I mean, it was like a born again religion for me. Like I was like, this is the gospel truth and I'm going to spread it to the world. Um, And because I had dealt with an eating disorder and body image issues, that became something that was very important to me. It was, you know, it was like never a purposeful, it's almost almost funny. Like you go back and you're like, here was this awful thing that happened to me. And now it's become like my professional life. Um, And I think that's true for most people who work with any kind of like trauma or mental illness issue. But here we are. Yeah, well, I think, but I think you said it so well there is that it gave you a framework to realize it wasn't your fault. And I think that that is so critical because, you know, when you're harboring the blame yourself, it just makes it so much harder to heal. Yes, absolutely. When you think that this is something that you have done and therefore you put the onus on yourself to also find a solution rather than recognizing that there are other things going on that have created that and that you can also like, work on those things. Like you can work on the world, but yeah, that idea that something is your fault is super difficult and definitely a barrier Mm -hmm. for folks. And I think it probably also helps like just going forward too, because then you are more equipped to deal with challenges because you'll be able to Mm. see it through that framework instead of thinking like there's something wrong with my operating system being able to exist in this world. It's like, no, 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 the culture is the problem. You're not the problem. Right. And I think part of what's so interesting, right? Like there's this cycle where I think part of what people experience is that the world is telling them, the society, the culture is telling them that everything is their fault, that things are very individualistic, that like if you end up in X place, it's because you were in Y place first or like whatever. And rather than obviously it it benefits society for you to blame yourself. Right. Mm -hmm. So it definitely, it makes it more difficult. It's like it it in and of itself is a barrier to understanding. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I feel like that's so huge for people. I think that that's, it's such a massive concept, especially, you know, when you're talking about uh, like, you know, like size and things like that and body image, like it's just, it's, it's a massive concept to understand like, Oh, like the way I feel about myself is not my fault. Like these beliefs are not my fault. Like I wasn't born thinking these things about myself. Yeah. You know, it's so funny. My mom is in the middle of, I don't know what it is. She's doing some kind of like training at her job that I don't quite understand. But I think it's, I think it's to like create like a trauma informed workplace, but she didn't use those words. So I don't know, but that's what it sounded like to me. And she was, you know, saying to me, you know, kind of like, she asked me one day, like, do, do we ever have an original thought? And I was like, well, what do you mean? And she was like, does anything we think or feel actually belong to us or has it been like placed there by society and socialization? And I was just like, slow clap, like, you know, like you're starting to get it. So I was like, 
I mean, yeah. I mean, obviously there's such a thing as quote unquote original thought, I guess, you know, like if you make a discovery or some shit, like sure. But uh, yeah, it's like, no, most of the things that you believe are true are the things that you value. You were taught to believe or taught to value. It comes from somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. That's deep though, to think that there's not an original thought. (laughs) (laughs) Especially as a writer, you start to question everything you've ever said. Plagiarizing every sentence I write. Yeah. It's super weird. Yeah, that's huge. So I want to talk to you about desirability politics because I loved your beauty school. I love all your beauty school emails, by the way. So to anyone Thank who's you. listening who doesn't subscribe, you need to get your shit together and yeah, get on I it. Yeah, I mean, it's only once a month. I try not to spam people. But so it's, it's so, they're so good. They're so good because they're so in-depth and a lot of the times like well-researched or just, you know, like in terms of what you're experiencing personally. But anyways, the one you wrote about desirability politics was great. And I would love to dive into that concept with you. So just to kind of kick it off, what does desirability politics, like, what does that even mean? Yeah, so this issue went out for Valentine's Day, which was like a beautiful uh, thing. (laughs) (laughs) But the idea of desirability politics is essentially, we're gonna get deep here, y'all. So stick with me is basically the idea that what we find attractive is in some part influenced by society. So when we say that we have a type, quote unquote, for example, what does that mean, right? Why do we think that that is true? Or people will say things like, I'm not attracted to black girls. That doesn't make any sense, right? Like that you're not attracted to a single black woman on earth. Like that cannot, that seems to me to be basically impossible. Essentially what you're saying is I have created a stereotype in my head. I have something in my head that is what black woman means. And I'm not attracted to that. Mm -hmm. Um, and that is definitely an issue of socialization. So that's the short answer. The short answer is that, uh, yeah, it's about the ways in which culture creates, um, in part our attractions to people and what do we do with that? Yeah. And so what, I mean, what do we do that with that? Why is that, (laughs) why is that an important thing to challenge from, I guess, from like a feminist perspective or a social justice perspective? Right. I think it's important to acknowledge that I feel very strongly my work. I try really hard to make my work biopsychosocial. So to take into consideration that there are biological, psychological, and sociocultural factors in everything that we do. Right. Mm -hmm. So I am a doctoral candidate, not for long. I will be a doctor soon. Um, I got like 60 days or something to become a doctor. Uh, But I'm currently a doctoral candidate uh, studying human sexuality studies. And uh, the program that I'm in is actually very, very strongly, very strongly values this idea of a biopsychosocial perspective. And there are absolutely biological and evolutionary psychological uh, factors in what we find attractive. Like that, I'm not denying that um, I'm, at all. I think that that's definitely true. But I think people really become a little bit dependent on that idea. And so folks will be like, oh, well, that's just what I'm attracted to. I can't help what I'm attracted to. But when your attractions and lack of attractions just so happens to fit the status quo, like you don't think that there's something going on there. Like, do you really believe that that's a coincidence? Right. Like, I don't. That's not. No. (laughs) Throughout history and throughout cultures. Right. So depending on where you are in time and space, what's considered attractive changes dramatically. 
And for each, for a person like in each culture or whatever, in each like historical time period to be like, oh, this is just so happens to be what I find attractive. And it just so happens to be the thing that this time and place says is attractive. Like that is not, that's not coincidental. You right. know, there's thing there. And I think it's important to unpack that because when we're talking about something like love and affection, um, companionship, all of these like beautiful things that come along with love. And we're saying that some people don't deserve that. Or there are some people for whom um, I'm not open to loving. That to me is like a really big red flag. And I think it is important to interrogate. That isn't to say like, oh, if you've never dated a person of color, you need to go date a person of color now. Like that's not like I'm not saying that. Mm -hmm. But I do think that you should sit with that and ask yourself why that is. Why haven't I dated or been attracted to a person of color? Like, it, might it be racism? <laughs> like, it might be. Yeah, yeah. And I think, like, and well, I think, like, again, like social conditioning in terms of what you're exposed to. Like, if all you see are images of like white, thin people, mm-hmm. then. Yeah. You know, you that's the ideal. Yeah. Yeah. And then it's like what we we what we've associated the meaning with that, too. Right. Like so if that's always portrayed as like the popular one, the quote unquote healthy one, like all these other attributes, then that's kind of what we would think is the most attractive without challenging it. Well, right, because that's the thing, right? Because again, like there is this biological evolutionary aspect to it. So like, for example, you can definitely say that there's a biological aspect to being attracted to health, right? Because, and obviously that makes sense, like just from a very basic, like survival of the species sort of standpoint, like you are attracted to someone who uh, you, we might be wired to be attracted to people who are going to live longer, who are going to be able to support us, who are going to be able to support children. Like that makes sense. But the thing is, is that what we find, what we believe is healthy changes over time and space. There are times and spaces where um, like larger, lusher bodies are what is considered more healthy because it's more difficult to attain Mm -hmm. a large body. Like if food is scarce, for example, versus in our current culture, food is generally abundant, although that obviously is not true for everyone. But and so therefore, it is more difficult to attain and maintain a thin body. And so therefore, that is what becomes the most attractive thing. And that's the thing that we associate with health. But what we associate with health generally is the same thing that is associated with wealth across time and space. So, you know, so it's like, yeah, sure, maybe we're attracted to health. And like, that makes sense from like a brain, you know, kind of perspective. But what we uh, understand as healthy is sociocultural. Yes. Wow. Yeah. Okay. That's like a lot to process, but it makes so much sense. <laughs> it makes so much sense though, because it's, yeah, you, you're, it's, and the, again, it's just that the narrative of what we've, we've been taught is healthy. And then therefore tying that into the biological need to want to be with someone who is healthy and that look of health kind of being associated with the conventional beauty standard. I'm just like processing it in my brain. It is right. Because even (laughs) if you look at like actual research, which most people don't. And I think that that is partly an issue of accessibility. But if you look at the actual research around like, again, like kind of evolutionary psychological uh, things that we find quote unquote attractive, like even they're like super, super vague. It's like, clear skin, uh, shiny hair. <laughs> like it's, it's not that super specific, like a thin white, you know, da, 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 da. like that's stuff that we were taught. That's not stuff that's happening, you know, in our, uh, 
you know, inner brain function. <laughs> that's, that's not that. Yeah, yeah. And so like, how do you unpack it? Like, I mean, have you done that some on your own to, to kind of like challenge your own beliefs? I think it's important to sit with and to just question and to and to look at. I don't know that there's a lot that you can do. I do think that when you start to think about it, and if you start to think about, you know, the politics of attraction or of desire, and you and you start to unravel how you've been taught to see people and who you've been taught to find desirable, I think that you do generally find that you become attracted to a wider range of people because you're opening that up for yourself. Like you're, you're taking the time to dismantle within yourself to the best of your ability, the ways in which you've internalized, you know, white supremacy or heteronormativity, cis normativity, all these things. Um, so you become, you know, slowly more open. And sometimes it's just, you have to sit and this is what's hard is you have to sit with the fact that you've done some fucked up things and said some fucked up things and thought some fucked up things about people. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, like, and that is definitely, definitely difficult, but that's part of doing the work. Any kind of social justice work is sitting with the ways in which you have caused harm mm -hmm. in the world, kind of like forgiving yourself for that. And also like committing to doing better moving forward. And it's sort of just like basic, almost like, like CBT, like practically, like you're basically just like rerouting your brain be like, that is a thought that's not appropriate. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I why did I think that thought? You know, why did that come to my head? Like where, what in my socialization created that thought for me? And why, like, how, how do I know that that's not okay? Um, and what, what can I do differently? Hopefully that will, that will change that. Yeah, that's so good. And so, okay, let me ask you this then, because what I often see is that, people go down this path, like they get into, let's say, you know, the gateway of uh, they get into body positivity, and then kind of sure. feminism or uh, vice versa in, you know, kind of into those worlds. And they start to, you know, understand these concepts and see these things. And but their partner doesn't. And it almost makes them feel like, okay, what's going to happen if my partner doesn't find me attractive anymore because my body changes or something like that? Like, do you feel like it's possible to encourage someone who you're in a partnership with to challenge their conditioning? Yeah. I mean, I'm at a point in my life where I wouldn't date someone who didn't agree with me politically. You know, it's like I'm, I, I personally have been beyond for like a decade, like beyond um, a space where I would get into a relationship with someone who didn't agree with me politically. So there's that. But I think that if you're in the process of kind of awakening to, uh, you know, social justice or body acceptance or whatever. And this, I mean, people ask me this a lot. I get a lot of people who are like, Hey, like my, I'm becoming body positive or whatever, but my partner is giving me shit saying mm -hmm. that I've gained weight or like whatever. And like, what do I do? Cause like, I love this person. I want to be with this person, but like, they're not on this same journey with me. And now I'm recognizing that a lot of the things they think are problematic. I think kind of like the downside of becoming interested in um, and involved in feminism or any social justice movement is you start to realize how fucked up the people around you are. Yes. Like it's, it's so difficult. It's like, you start to be like, wow, like I can't even like, I don't even want to be around this person anymore because now I realize how often they're like committing these microaggressions and saying these like small, or they could be overt obviously, but they also could just be kind of small things that are just like, wow, like this is so against what I believe in. And I think that's difficult. I also think it's a perfectly good reason to break up with someone. 
Like, I don't think that it is your responsibility to like work through that with someone if that doesn't feel appropriate to you, especially if they're being oppressive to you. Like if, you know, like I'm queer, um, but I also date, you know, in, in that I also date like cis straight men. But like, if I was with like a cis straight man who was like homophobic or just like, you know, queer antagonistic, like I don't have time for that. <laughs> like, that's not, that's hurtful to me. You know, that's like my, that's my life. Yeah. So that's, you know, that would be a perfectly good reason to be like, I can't be with you. Yeah. Um, but I think more to the point, like, I think trying to help folks like, uh, kind of understand where you're coming from with your new viewpoint, that's true no matter what you're taking on. Because if you're in a partnership, especially like a long-term partnership, you change, like that's life. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of a commitment to someone long-term is a commitment to kind of like working through these changes and changing together. Uh, and I think that, you know, if someone is really very resistant to your like political awakening, I think that, you know, you find entry points to start having conversations or to start, you know, helping them understand. Um, and I think that that, I think that that's really important. Could be like, Hey babe, like I want you to read this book that I read that really, you know, um, made a difference for me. And I want to talk to you about what you think about it or like, Hey, let's walk to watch this documentary together. And, you know, I want to know what you think about it. It can be like pretty small mm-hmm. uh, and you see how it goes. And then you have to, you know, you gauge for yourself, like where you're at, <laughs> like, does this feel good or is it not feeling good anymore? Yeah. And how is it making you feel like, are you feeling oppressed mm-hmm. or are you feeling like disrespected? That's huge, yeah. huge. Yeah. Because you shouldn't disrespect your beliefs no matter what they are. Like right. that's not a good partnership. You right. Know? Yeah. So we've talked about this from the perspective of like our own desires and where how our own desires, like the element of social conditioning in that. But how does that impact our sexuality? So in other words, how does the way that our conditioned beliefs about attractiveness impact our own sexuality? Well, I mean, sexuality is complex, right? So I do sex research as a sexologist. So like my, my understanding of sex is very, very, very broad, more than most people's. Um, sexuality is complex because it isn't just about sexual behavior and it's not just about sexual orientation, which is what most people think of when you say, I study sex. Like those are the two things they think you mean. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's, those two things are part of it, but there's way more to sexuality than that because sexuality is also about intimacy. It's also about you know, physical intimacy, emotional intimacy, all of that, like not necessarily just sexual behavior. It's also about like reproduction, (laughs) like obviously like that, that fits into it. But sexuality is also about violence and harassment um, and manipulation. Like those things also fit into sexuality. Sexuality is about your values and your belief systems. Um, Sexuality is a very broad thing. So I think the thing about sexuality is it, it touches every part of your life. Even if you're someone who is asexual or um, abstaining or uh, celibate for like any reason, sexuality is still a very, very important part of your life. And as such, it, it touches all the other aspects of your life. So I think when it comes to attraction, so attraction is also obviously a part of sexuality. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it's hard because I also like, I, you know, I would never say to someone like, oh, you just so happen to be straight. Like that's the status quo. That's wrong. Like, you know, I wouldn't say that. Like, you, you have the, you're oriented in the ways that you're oriented. Um, and you identify in the ways that you identify. And I wouldn't want to push anyone to do something that makes them uncomfortable in any way, shape or form. But so like, it doesn't necessarily, nothing about your sexuality has to change necessarily, Mm -hmm. but it's, it's, it's more about 
who, who am I attracted to? Why am I attracted to them? How does that show up in my sexual relationship with them? How does it show up in my sexual relationship with other people? You know, Mm -hmm. just sort of like packing all of that stuff. Yeah. And I guess, I guess, um, what, uh, what I want to dig into there is just how does that shape like our own beliefs about our attractiveness? So as individuals, like, Mm. you know, we're taught what's, whether or not we're attractive and, and that has an influence, I guess, on like our intimacy and things like that. Sure. I mean, right. Like I'm a thin white conventionally attractive woman, for example. And that's something that I've known since like high school, you know, like I've known that people are attracted to me. Like that's mm-hmm. never been a question. I've never been like, oh, like, like obviously I've had people who I was attracted to not be attracted to me or like whatever on like a one-on-one basis, but I've never felt like ugly quote unquote by society standards, maybe in middle school, but who doesn't feel ugly in middle school, honestly. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so, um, yeah. So I think that when you are closer to what the ideal is, that definitely affects your relationship to yourself because you know you can even know deep down, even if you struggle with body image issues like yourself, psychologically, you can generally, if you try, separate that from how society sees you. And you can recognize that society sees you a different way than you see yourself and that that's important. When you don't feel attractive for whatever reason, whether that's because uh, of social influences or something going on with you psychologically, if you don't feel like you're attractive, that has a huge effect on your sexual behavior, your sexual desire, your sexual functioning. It has huge, huge effects on these things. So for example, uh, like women with negative body image are less likely to have sex with the lights on, are less likely to undress in front of a partner, are less likely to try new things. Whereas women with positive body image tend to have higher, you know, sexual assertiveness, sexual drive, sexual esteem. Obviously that affects like your literal situation of like sexual behavior whether or not you think you're cute like it definitely has has an effect on that yeah well i think that's so important because again like we blame ourselves for not being more sexual you know Mm -hmm. like we we blame we think that there's something wrong with us when that's just kind of this other script that we've been given and asked to perform and it's really related to the way that we've been taught to feel about our bodies Yeah, absolutely. There's a super relationship there. And I think that there's also a pressure for there to be a specific kind of uh, like a way that we perform sexuality in general, which um, puts a lot of pressure on people. So folks who are so I just finished a study, my study for my dissertation was on how women with anorexia, like talk about their experiences with skin hunger, which is your uh, desire for sensual touch. So like non sexual touch. And something that I found, one of the reasons why I did that work was because there's a lot of research that shows that women with anorexia have very low sex drives, tend to have very low sex drive. And all of the women that I talked to in my interviews, not all of them, but a lot of them were like, yeah, like, I feel like there's something wrong with me because I don't have a high sex drive. And for them to realize that that was actually totally a normative experience, given, you know, the population that they fit into, like... You know, that's mind blowing to realize that it's not you like there's nothing. There's actually nothing inherently wrong with having a low sex drive anyway. Yeah, like that's not a bad thing. That's just life. Like that's that's just who you are. Like we all have varying levels of sex drive. But to kind of affirm for someone that they're not alone or that's not weird or there's nothing wrong with them is like, you know, it's like life altering for people. And it that's sad that that's true. 
Mm-hmm. Because there shouldn't be an expectation for anyone to perform sexually in ways that aren't comfortable for them, regardless. Yeah, that's no, but that's massive because you are just compounding the pressure you put on yourself in those types of situations. Like, especially if like you already don't feel comfortable in your body and then you're unable to achieve some level of arousal that you think you should achieve or have a libido mm-hmm. that you think you should have. It's just a recipe for not enjoying intimacy. Yeah, absolutely. As soon as we believe that there's some kind of a like script in terms of what sex looks like, um, it's people are one of the I actually give a presentation on the relationship between um, sexuality and bodies, particularly for women. And Mm. one of the things that I cover is orgasm. And I talk about how orgasm doesn't look for a lot of people the way that it looks in pornography, like orgasm is a some people, you know, have very, very, there's very varying ways in which orgasm can look um, and feel for people. And that is one of, I feel like uh, whenever I give that presentation, people are like, oh my God, thank you. Like I always thought there was something wrong. I thought I wasn't orgasming. Like people literally be like, I thought I'd never had an orgasm before, but you made me realize that I have, I just, it just didn't look like that. I wasn't screaming and clutching the sheets, <laughs> you know? So yeah. I, I thought I wasn't having one. And it's like the, those scripts, those like, messages that we get from media and from society are, they make us think something's wrong with us. This episode of Fearless Rebel Radio is brought to you by Studio's Vasa Blow headphones. Vasa Blow is the perfect harmony of studio quality sound and Scandinavian minimalist design. I have Studio's Vasa Blow earphones, wireless earphones in rose gold black, and they are really cool looking and the sound quality is amazing. These wireless earphones feature carefully tuned internal drivers and amplifiers to separate distinct sounds within the music, giving you an authentic, almost like being their listening experience. They boast up to eight hours of unlimited playtime with a unique standby mode for up to 10 days of battery life, giving you ultimate wireless freedom. Its unparalleled design coupled with being the lightest on the market to date makes the Vasa Blow the perfect companion for any Bluetooth enabled device. You can find the link to Studio's website in the show notes for this episode or go to www.studio.com and be sure to enter promo code FEARLESS, that's F-E-A-R-L-E-S-S, at checkout to save 15% off any purchase. Their headphones are gorgeous and they also provide free worldwide shipping. Can you talk about that a little bit more, the orgasm? Yeah, I love talking about that. Yeah. <laughs> I was a little hard without visuals, but I'll try. Um, <laughs> the, uh, not, yeah, there, there's like a chart that I, if I had it, I would show it to you. Um, but so basically there's like kind of this idea that for a quote unquote female orgasm or an orgasm for a person who has a vagina that what orgasm generally looks like is, you know, you kind of like build up to this excitement phase, right? There's this thing, if y'all want to look it up, it's called um, the sexual response cycle. It was, it's a model that was created by Masters and Johnson. And the sexual response cycle uh, starts at arousal, right? So that's when you're feeling tingly, you're excited, you're like into it. Uh, And then uh, plateau, plateau is like, all right, I'm doing this. I feel good about it. Like, cool. (laughs) Like, it's good. Then there's climax, right? Which obviously is orgasm. And then, um, what do you call it? Resolution. So that's when, that's kind of like the, oh, like, all right, like we did it. Mm-hmm. Obviously the sexual response cycle doesn't always complete. Women especially know that, uh, unfortunately. Yes. But, right. But 
Um, that's the cycle. And so a lot of people think of female orgasm as when you hit the excitement phase, I mean, not the excitement, the climax phase, when you hit that, then it's like you're like you're having a very intense reaction. You're like, again, like you're screaming, clutching the sheets, like it's transcendental. Like you're having this like really, really intense experience. For some people, orgasm does look like that all the time or sometimes for sure. But there are other people for whom um, orgasm looks very different. So for some folks, orgasm is more like little like waves of that sort of like, like excitement rather mm. than a big, strong rush. Yeah. It's sort of like these waves. The way that you basically know is if afterwards you feel satisfied. Yeah. If you don't feel like restless and like, you know, like you can't sleep or like, you know, whatever afterwards, like you, you may have had an orgasm. It's just a very different experience of orgasm or something else that people don't realize is that not all people with vaginas can have multiple orgasms. There's like this assumption that you should be multiply orgasmic, but that's not true. There's some people with vaginas are multiply orgasmic. Some people with penises are multiply orgasmic, but, um, fewer, right. Mm -hmm. But there's this idea that because most people with vaginas don't have a refractory period, which is like that feeling where it's like your genitals are very, very sensitive and you don't want them to be touched. Um, because most people with vaginas don't go through that. That's why we tend to be able to be multiply orgasmic. We can keep going, but that's not true for all people. Some people need to stop yeah. after they have orgasm. So there's just sort of like these assumptions and people think, oh, there's something wrong with me because I can't have multiple orgasms or people will be like, oh, I like quote unquote ejaculated or squirted. There's something wrong with me. Like, that's not right. You know, like, or the opposite where people are like, oh, I wish that I could like ejaculate. Like, and it's just like, y'all, like, however you have an orgasm is good. Like, however you have it is good. Don't worry about it. You know, so there's just a lot of like weird misconceptions or even the very common misconception that orgasm happens through penetration, which most of the time it does not. Yeah. You know, and just, you know, 70% of people with vaginas do not, cannot orgasm through penetration alone. And just the fact that like, we think that that's what's supposed to happen. That's feel huge. Like yeah. I feel like there's something wrong with us. If like, that's not what's happening for us. Like, I mean, that's, that's sad. <laughs> you know, like that's just, it's sad that that you know, we don't enjoy our own sexual experience because of the misinformation that exists about how our bodies work and how our partners, particularly even male partners will tell us our body is supposed to work is astounding. Yeah, no, that's, um, I'm glad we talked about that. That obviously wasn't on the agenda, but I find that so <laughs> interesting. And I think people will too, because it's like, there's just so many misconceptions about it. And it drives me crazy when you watch TV and you see a sex scene and it's like the girl riding the guy and they, climax at the exact same time like oh, yeah, just right. that's the at the same time I think this happened to me twice in my life you know, like completely by accident like that's just yeah it's like it's so they put there's so much pressure on like what you know good sex is supposed to be and it's like that's so individual and like being able to talk to your partner about what they like and what they want and what you like and what you want like that's really that's what good sex is it's yeah. just being able to communicate about it and not have expectations about what's supposed to happen and really like i i think and this was coming from i remember i read come as you are by emily Nikoski, mm -hmm. I think is how you say her last name, but it's just, it's about finding pleasure. Like it's about, it doesn't have to be about like an outcome, you know, like having an orgasm. Right. It's just pleasure. Like, are you enjoying yourself? And that's, that should be kind of are the, you having the focus. Fun? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's really what it should, what it should be about. But unfortunately, I mean, I could talk about this forever because I have really strong feelings about it. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's good. I, I mean, I love really, it. I love it. We it's really sad. Yeah, yeah, totally. Is there anything else you want to say on it? Oh, man, just that the whole thing is a sad mess. And I think it's a very, very clear, you know, 
symptom of oppression that men don't have this issue. Yes, they have performance issues, like the idea that like they're supposed to perform in a certain way and like hypermasculinity. And I'm not trying to downplay how difficult that is. Um, and also the expectation to always want sex when, and you know, the ways in which we don't talk as much about men and consent as we do women. But I think that, um, you know, I think that it is just a very clear symptom of oppression that women are put in this position of having to perform sex in a certain way for it to, uh, be quote unquote, right. Mm -hmm. Um, that may not be right for you. Like if I could tell you how many women are like, something's wrong with me. My partner said something's wrong with me because I don't orgasm when we have sex. What's wrong with me? And I'm like, can you orgasm on your own? And they're like, yeah. And I'm like, nothing's wrong with you. There's nothing wrong with you. It's the sex that's wrong. Yeah. <laughs> nothing's wrong with your body. You know, uh, maybe something's going on with you, like with anxiety or maybe something or stress or whatever. Um, or maybe the sex isn't good, but it's definitely not you. And it's just, it's just so, it just makes me really sad when I hear these like ridiculous expectations that are put onto women. I've heard women tell me that their partners, their male partners told them their vulvas looked weird oh, or like wow. looked wrong. Wow. I mean, literally, if you are like that close to me, <laughs> like, and that's what you're going to say, you can go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what? What do you do with that? You know, it's just, yeah. What? yeah. Talk about body image issues. I know. Yeah. We need another standard of what our yeah, vulva is supposed to standard. look like. Yeah. Vulva has to look, <laughs> smell, and taste great. <laughs> Something's wrong with you. Wow. I would say that's probably the influence of porn on, on, Oh my gosh, absolutely. I literally tell people, I'm like, if a dude tells you that your vulva looks weird, that's probably because the only vulvas he's ever seen has been in pornography. Because they, people are, it's just like actresses, you know, in Hollywood are chosen based on what they look like and based on a standard. Like, same thing for, like, you know, mainstream pornography. Like, there is a particular looking vulva that, like, gets put in pornography. Mm -hmm. Um, And that does not represent what all vulvas look like. And so if they're like, oh, your vulva doesn't look like this, then it's like, well, that's, you need to get face to face with some more vulvas in real life. Yeah. I'm going to quote the book again from Cummins York where she's like, everything is normal, just organized in different ways or something like that. Like she says it over and over and over. She's like, your body is normal. It's just organized in a different way. Like everybody's body is normal. Um, The parts are just organized differently because every, every vulva looks different. Like every... Just like your face. Penis like, looks you different, like too. Look different. It's fine. However yes. it is, fine. Oh, my God. Yes. We need to start thinking about vulvas like faces. It's like just another face. face. Like, <laughs> it's, it's different, like, but it's cute. Don't worry about it. Oh, that's awesome. Okay. <laughs> let's let's go a different direction here. Because I know – so you just did a, a workshop on feminism. And I, yeah. one of the things that you tweeted was, feminism is not the simple belief that men and women are equal. In fact, I would argue that feminism isn't about equality or gender for that matter at all. Would you be willing to elaborate on that and give us the answer? Yeah. The answer. What is the answer? <laughs> so I think that that's a really simplified way to look at feminism. And I think that when we look at things in a simplified way, it does a great disservice to the work. So feminism is a sociopolitical movement toward the liberation, like social, political, and economic liberation for all people. When we talk about equality, equality is, I think, a dangerous goal because if society treats people differently based on various intersections of oppression, and then you're just like, I'm just going to treat everyone the same. I'm just going to be like equally respectful and kind or like, you know, whatever to everyone. That sounds great in theory. But if you've been oppressed, if your starting point because of your uh, social positionality 
is really far back from someone else's, them treating you with like equal respect that they would to another person who shares their identities, like that doesn't help you. Mm. That doesn't help you. That doesn't change anything, right? Like you need to go the extra mile for folks who are like are more marginalized than you, for example. So like treating people the same or giving people quality is not useful. One of the examples that I gave in the workshop is a super weird example, but like I'm totally obsessed with this show Degrassi, which is like a teen drama. Oh, uh, I'm, I'm from Canada. Like <laughs> oh, I okay. grew well, up on Degrassi and I still watch the later Degrassi. years when I was in my 30s. So yeah. Yes. <laughs> so I love Degrassi and I still watch Degrassi, even though like most people who even love Degrassi no longer watch it, but I still do. And I watch it. I would watch it if I could yeah, find it. <laughs> it's, so good. Oh, it's on Netflix. Um, the new episode. So anyway, there was a storyline in um, one of the recent seasons of Degrassi where they, they had a feminist club. And one of the women in feminist club had this sort of, she had kind of created this um, like campaign around basically what they wanted was they were like, we each have something like four bathrooms. Like boys have four bathrooms, girls have four bathrooms in the school, right? That's a quality, right? Mm. That's an equal number of bathrooms. But her point was uh, it takes women longer to use the restroom. Like it, there's, just that's such a fact, right? You go to like a restaurant, you know that like the line for the women's room is always longer than the line for the men's room is. Right. Not that we should even have men's and women's rooms. So that's a topic for another day. But we know that that's true. So the feminist club at Degrassi Community School was like, <laughs> we want to take one of the boys' bathrooms yeah. because if we have to wait in line for the bathroom, then we might be late to class. Now we're missing out on education, you know, like da da da. And so they were like, I think the boys should have three bathrooms or whatever, and the girls should have five. Um, and that was what they were trying to do. That's like a really good example of what justice looks like, I think, mm-hmm. is like, let's try to create not a quality on the surface level, but rather like, how do we, how do we make this more equitable? How do we give the, the group that's suffering more so that equality, quote unquote, can be reached? But liberation to me would be if we just didn't need restrooms at all. But of course, that's a little weird of an example. But um, mm-hmm. so like liberation would be like, this doesn't even exist. Like this idea doesn't even exist and doesn't hurt anyone. So yeah, so I think, and also ge- it's not just about gender because we can't help people of marginalized gender. So that's women, cis and trans, that's gender non-conforming people, gender queer people, agender people, non-binary people, et cetera. Anyone who's basically not a man is oppressed by patriarchy. And if we say that we want to help those people even, we can't help those people if we're not dealing with the fact that they have other intersections of identity that affect their womanhood or their, you know, their agenderhood or like whatever. Mm-hmm. Like race plays a role. Class plays a role. Sexual orientation plays a role. Size plays a role. Ability plays a role. If we're ignoring all of these other things, who do we help at the end of the day? Who's getting helped? Right. So to me, if you think of feminism as a gender issue, you're just wrong. Like there's just, you can't, you can't fight one oppression without fighting the other oppression. Similarly, like racial justice work is not just about race. It can't be, it has to be about gender. It has to be about class. Like it has to be all about all of these other things. And I think that that is a really, really important, you know, aspect of it. And that's a black feminist idea. That idea of like intersectionality comes from black feminist thought. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the idea that like for black women, it's like, we're not just black and we are not just women. We are black women. And that matters. That, yeah. that has, you know, we have a different men have, we have a different experience than white women have, like it's a different thing. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so that's, I mean, that's a short answer. Yeah, but that's <laughs> a very short. <laughs> it, well, I, God, I love you for using a Degrassi example. That made so much <laughs> sense really too. <laughs> <laughs> um, come back for another episode where we just yeah, use Degrassi examples. <laughs> 
<laughs> I'd be all over that, especially if we can get into like the original, the original like yeah, spike right. years. Yes, <laughs> Snake. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, but it makes perfect sense though, like because you got to think about all of the different layers to it. Like it's not just it's not black and white. Like it's not just male female. It's it's exactly. it's so much more than that. Which I think you know, feminism seems to be such a trendy thing now, but it is very much that basic understanding that we see, like just like mm-hmm. oh no, it's about equality, and that's such a and it's just a belief. It's just it's not any kind of action. I'm not doing anything. You know, that's how a lot of people are. Like they're like, I believe men and women are equal. I'm a feminist, and it's like that is not useful. Yeah, that's not helping anybody. Yes, <laughs> like that's just a basic humanity. Yeah. <laughs> the fact that you believe that you know you haven't done anything special. So good. So good. Is there anything else that you I know because I know you just did the workshop last night that was like that you want to share with people listening today before we wrap this up that you were particularly <laughs> spicy or salty about? <laughs> I don't know. I don't think so. You know, it was a it was a very interesting. The workshop was fun. I'm doing another one in April, not on feminism, but on intimate partner violence. And yeah, I mean, it was just it's a, it's interesting to talk to people about oppression because people really tend to have a very basic understanding of what it is. And that makes sense. Obviously we like build knowledge and it starts from a very foundational place, but it's, it's, it's so powerful to help people move through mm-hmm. kind of their basic understanding of something into something that's like deeper um, and more all encompassing. Yeah. So I've heard people say like, you can't say women are oppressed because it, women are not oppressed, but you can say like, you know, like a black woman is oppressed. Like what are your, what are your thoughts around that? Well, to me, me, that just is stupid. And I shouldn't say stupid. That's actually ableist. I shouldn't say that. It's, that's ridiculous. If you, I honestly, like people who don't believe that women are oppressed, like I don't even talk to them. Like I don't even bother. I don't even use my energy to try to explain to them how women are oppressed because they are so far beyond, you know, Mm -hmm. understanding. Um, And I don't think that that is a worth, it's, it's not a worthwhile use of my time to try to get someone from believing, from not believing that women are oppressed to becoming feminists. Yeah. Like, I'm going to do that. So yeah. I don't. But I guess um, it's like oppression happens on a scale. Like it's, it's, oh yeah, yeah. Absolutely. It happens on a scale. And like when we have, again, like overlapping social identities that are oppressed, we become more and more oppressed. Like I wouldn't say white women aren't oppressed and black women are oppressed, but mm-hmm. rather black women are more oppressed than white women. But then that also gets into like oppression Olympics, like who's the most oppressed. And I don't think that's useful either. Yeah. Um, but rather it's just important to recognize that different layers of power and oppression affect our lives mm-hmm. um, and show up in our lives and our day-to-day lives. They show up in institutions, they show up in systems. Um, and that's important to recognize. Yeah. And that's, I mean, seeing it on that level is what's really going to help create change. Yeah. yeah. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Good stuff. No, I appreciate you answering that. Well, it's been a pleasure. I feel like I could talk to you about so many different things. Um, thank <laughs> well, you. anytime. Thank you so much for your time here today. Where can people find more of you? They can find me. My website is melissafabello.com. That has all my social media. It has like a link to um, subscribing to my newsletter. Um, it has information about my consulting services, booking me as a speaker, a contact form. Basically, everything you ever need is at melissafabello.com. What kind of consulting services do you do? That's a great question. So I do digital content strategy consulting. So for folks to do work within kind of general, like the wellness sphere, um, any kind of body image, eating disorders, sexuality, dating, uh, dating violence, feminism, social justice, da 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 da, all of these things that I care about. So mm-hmm. folks who are trying to launch projects or who want to get better at using their social media, um, who want a nice website, who want to start a blog, like whatever, whatever it is they want that has to do with like the digital sphere. 
I help coach them through it. Oh, that's really cool. That's awesome. Yeah. Right on. Well, that's great. I'm going to link to your Patreon and your webinar too, because I think that that's awesome. important. Thank and you. Obviously, you're, you're on Twitter a lot too. I am. Yeah. Probably. <laughs> you're skilled at that though. I cannot. Twitter is just not my, not my thing. I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't tweet. I can't. Yeah. Well, you know, you find your thing. You do podcasts. I would never do a podcast. So there you go. We're all good at different things. <laughs> all right. Well, you've been awesome. And I can't, sh- I can't wait to share this with people. Thank you so much for your time awesome. today. Thank you so much. Rock on. I had such a good time in that interview. I hope you enjoyed it. I will forever be thinking about Volvas's faces, and I hope you do too. All right. Don't forget to leave a review for the show. Thank you so much for listening this week. I will see you next time. Rock on. I'm Summer Inanin, and I want to thank you for listening today. You can follow me on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Summer Inanin. If you haven't yet, Go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this show. I would be so grateful. Until next time, rock on. Rock on.